We're going to be reading out of 1 Timothy 3 through 11. Please rise for the reading of God's word. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remaining at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we look into God's word together this morning. Lord, would you give us uh, insight into what your word says here in these few verses. We pray for your spirit to be active in and among us this morning as we consider what you inspired Paul to write to Timothy and for the church at Ephesus. Lord, may we understand what it means for the church here as well. God, would you give us courage and boldness to take up in appropriate ways, the charge that Paul is giving Timothy here in these verses. We ask and we pray in your name. Amen. Well, almost no one likes confrontation. It's awkward and it's uncomfortable. And when you think about it, you begin, it's, it doesn't take long before you can think of a dozen ways that, that this could backfire, Right? For those people, for the rare people who do like confrontation, we could probably say it, it, they'd, be, they'd probably be better off if they didn't like it so much, right? Ideally, we could just give instructions with such clarity and such charity, and the one we're instructing would have such diligence and obedience and understanding that it would all just work, just be fine. But that's not the world we live in. Our shortcomings, our ignorances, our sin even, create confusion, not just confusion, but disobedience. Sometimes we know exactly what it is and we just don't want to do it. And so the coach of the team has to correct the players on technique and strategy. The parent has to correct children on what's right and proper the boss has to correct employees about how we do things around here, if you will. Any organization suffers when those in leadership are unwilling to do the hard work of confrontation, the awkward work, the not fun work of confronting, even, even if they feel inadequate to the task, even if they are inadequate to the task. It is still better for the business, for the organization, for the family, for the church, if those who are put in that position take that task up. So what does this mean for the church? Well, we want to think that teaching against false things, teaching against wrong things, won't be needed. That kind of confrontation, it, it it can kind of seem mean at times. And it's sort of catchy to say that we in the church don't want to be known for the things that we're against. Sort of a catchy buzz 
saying uh, in today's day and age, yet that's frankly just not what we see in Scripture. Jesus doesn't live by that. Paul doesn't live by that. It's just not the reality of the biblical text. If Paul taught churches, then as soon as he left, they fell into false teaching, then who do we think we are to say that we could somehow teach with such clarity, with such persuasion, that false teaching just wouldn't happen in our church, wouldn't happen around us, right? We said that this letter to Timothy gives God's blueprint for a strong church. A strong church is built on the truth of God's Word, but also a strong church protects and promotes God's Word. And in chapters 2 through 6, Paul's going to give Timothy some, some different uh, uh, um, organizational structures, if you will, that will help the church there to promote and to protect the truth. Do these things, and it will tend towards these good results, if you will. But in the first chapter, the first chapter here of 1 Timothy, we get sort of an idea of what the situation is at Ephesus and why Paul is, is writing to Timothy in the first place. You see, there was a command that Paul gave Timothy when he left him there that Paul feels the need to remind him of and even to sort of double down on to say, look, make sure you're doing this. And I think the implication for us is that Timothy either has not been doing it or he is hesitant to do it or he's kind of been um, uh, light-handed, if you will, in it. And Paul wants to give him some confidence. Paul wants to give him a, a sort of a challenge. He wants to put it back in front of his face and say, no, really, this is what you need to be doing. You see, if Timothy doesn't fight this fight, Paul knows that he and others will die spiritually. It's that important. And so the focus for the next two weeks, as we look at the first chapter here of 1 Timothy, is going to be uh, on this uh, first charge, this first command to oppose unsound teaching and to oppose unsound teachers. But for today, what we're going to consider is this, sound churches, sound churches, that is strong ones, right, ones that are built in such a way that they can be strong, sound churches must oppose unsound teaching. Particularly this Sunday, we're going to see that they must do that by aiming at love and godliness. Their aim is love and godliness in this task. And so we need to ask ourselves two questions. First, how do we oppose unsound teaching? And second, how do we identify unsound teaching? Paul's going to give us some directions here, some, some helps in, in what that looks like. So in verse 3, it starts again, like I said, with Paul reminding Timothy of the task that he gave him when he left, when he last saw him, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. But not just to confront those who are teaching it, but I want you to notice that he is also to confront those who are devoted to it. Verse 4, not nor to devote themselves. That word devote could be translated to pay careful attention to. If we were talking about something that uh, they, were, they were being on their guard against, when Jesus uses the same Greek word, he says, beware, beware. When in, in Luke, when we were going through Luke and he's talking to uh, the people about the Pharisees, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees, he would say. Pay careful attention to, in other words, be devoted to avoiding this. But these people are, are devoted to, or paying careful attention to, a different doctrine. So, another way that we could 
think about this, these certain persons are not just those who are cooking up different doctrines, but it is those who are consuming a steady diet of them. You know, the kinds of things you consume, whether you intend it or not, they will transform you. What you take into your eyes, what you take into your ears, what you take into your brain and into your heart, it will transform you in a particular way. You can, you can say you want to be healthy, but if you continue to eat junk day in and day out, don't be surprised if you find that you're unhealthy, right? That's true spiritually as well. Some are digesting this unsound teaching at such a regular rate that it is transforming the way that they live for the worse, not for the better. But before we look at how to identify that unsound teaching, what that different doctrine is, I want to consider some ways to oppose it and to oppose these certain persons. Yet, I want to give a qualification here about these certain persons, okay? Because we won't talk more about this until next week, but, it, but in case you get, you know, uh, some uh, boost of courage, I want you to have a little bit of an understanding of who these certain persons are not, okay? In the, this first part of the letter, Paul differentiates between certain persons whom he leaves nameless here, who have swerved, it says in verse 6, and particular people whom he will call out by name who have, quote, shipwrecked their faith, if we look down in verse 19. So in verse 19, he names particular people by name whom he says have not merely swerved, but have actually shipwrecked already. So the certain persons are headed for shipwreck, and so, but some people have already shipwrecked. For those who have already shipwrecked, he will, in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, call them out by name multiple times. Now imagine, imagine that. Imagine there's someone in our congregation, and, I'm st- and I stand up here, and I'm reading this letter from Paul, and I say, well, and Alexander, you know he you know, and Alexander's sitting in his pew, and he's kind of like doing this number, you know, like, you know, and yet Paul does that. There is a place for that, is what I'm saying. There is a place for that kind of specificity when it is needed, and yet we also have to understand that there's a place here as well where Paul goes, no, I'm not going to call these people out by name. I'm not going to put them in the Word of God for the rest of eternity Timothy, you know who we're talking about. They probably know who they're talking about. When you read this, everyone's going to probably know what they're talking about. You don't need to say them by name. You need to deal with them personally. That's what you need to do. You need to speak to that personally. But you don't necessarily need to call them out by name to the entire congregation. And so we have to realize the gravity of each situation as we oppose unsound teaching and unsound teachers. And I understand that that is, can sometimes be tricky to know what to do. Hopefully, hopefully as we go through this, Paul gives us some, some direction. God's Word gives us some direction in that. But lest we immediately go out and start calling people, you know, everyone we think is a little bit off by name and saying that they are just, you know, a shipwrecked, let's Let's uh, make sure that we have that in proper check, and yet we also can't do nothing is what this text is saying. We have to do something about it. So what should we do? How do we oppose it? Well, first, elders must confront unsound teaching. Timothy was left in Ephesus to fill a leadership role and, and to place other elders in, in place as well to do that. We'll see in, um, verse, or in chapter 3, we'll talk about that a little bit more. And these men are to teach, they're to guard the doctrine of the church, they're to have authority over the church body. And so the part of this task that's given to Timothy here is ultimately the task of elders in the church and elders today. This would include generally from the pulpit, 
addressing those things, as well as specifically individuals who are falling into some different doctrine. We could look at Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where Paul, it's the last time Paul talks to the elders of the church of Ephesus live and in person. And he pulls them together and he says in verse 28, pay careful attention, same word, devote yourself, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And we get a little bit of both the gravity of the task as well as the motivation for the task. These people, Christ Jesus shed his blood for. May it not be that you would be unwilling elders to pay careful attention, that you'd be unwilling to confront unsound teaching from some self-centered, selfish motivation that you don't want to avoid that awkwardness, want to avoid that difficulty. May it never be because Christ shed his blood for them and the Holy Spirit himself has made you overseers of them, has, has brought them into your flock. Do the job of a shepherd. Paul's reminding Timothy of that obligation. But I want to say also that as big of a responsibility that, as that is for elders, members, you have a responsibility too. Because Hebrews 13, 17 tells us this, to let your elders do this. It says, quote, do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be of no advantage to you. You understand that God has put elders over you for a particular purpose, and that's to your advantage. It's to your good. It's to help you. And when you are unresponsive, unreceptive, when we lack humility, when we lack, lack willingness to listen to those elders, it has an enormous impact on the health of the church. And on you. It's not, a, it's not of any advantage to you. So the elders must confront unsound teaching. But also everyone, everyone avoids promoting unsound teaching. The elders must confront unsound teaching, but that does not mean that you never ought to do so. You may be at times in a position to open up the scriptures and question what someone is teaching or believing or what someone is devoting themselves to. You, member of the church, may be in a position to turn to someone else in the congregation a friend and say, hey, let's look at what God's word says about that. You, husband, have an obligation to turn to your wife and say, let's talk about what God's word says about that. And if I don't know, I'm going to figure it out. Fathers, you have an obligation with your kids as well. And so we can avoid promoting unsound teaching by confronting it even amongst ourselves. But also, there is this issue, not only to confront it like in that way, but also to not entertain it. Listen, in our, especially in our technological world, um, you know, if you, want to find, if you want to find someone who believes something or teaches something, you can find it, like anything. Uh, websites, YouTube videos, blogs, whatever. If you, want some, if you want validation for a particular belief, you can find someone out there on the internet who has that belief, no matter how crazy it is, okay? You can find someone who's devoted to it. And we have to ask ourselves, when we can continue to consume that, that which is a different doctrine, we promote. We're promoting that, which is a different doctrine. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for paying careful attention in the negative sense. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for a person who has devoted themselves to 
to, to, to understanding of false teaching so that they can save people from it, right? And certainly that's a task that, that we all, and to some degree, have to take up, and, and we have certain people, by God's grace, who have become uh, well-versed in um, particular uh, false teachings and are able to help the church. And that's one of the benefits of the internet. The benefits of technology is, is that we have access to, to those things in a way that we've never had before. So there's a difference between those, those two things. But, but we ought not to promote unsound teaching in those ways. We ought not to be devoted to it ourselves. I pray that many unsound teachings die in our church just because we won't listen to it. And so it moves on to somewhere else. So how do we identify it? Well, I think there's at least three pointers that I want to share with you this morning in the remaining verses of our text. First, uh, they are that it points people to faith in Christ, that it produces love for God and others, and that it promotes godliness. And I want to frame this in three questions that we can ask ourselves if we're uh, faced with a teaching and we think, well, is this unsound teaching or not? We can ask ourselves these three questions. So the first question is this, does it promote speculation or does it promote the stewardship of faith? And so what are these different doctrines? I've kind of held off trying to define them a little bit more clearly until now. Well, the only other place that we find this word that's translated different doctrines is actually in 1 Timothy 6.13. There, and you can read that uh, in full later, that description there, but I'll summarize it. There, Paul says it's that those things that don't agree with the sound words of Jesus, that don't accord with godliness... And it's those things that reveal that a teacher is arrogant, quarrelsome, and greedy, among other things. And this teaching that these certain people were were, um, promoting in the church there in Ephesus was not obviously, was not always obviously opposed to Scripture. Look, it says that they considered themselves to be teachers of the law, actually, in verse 7. And so it was not someone who's just standing here saying the Bible's not true. It's someone who was putting themselves forward as a teacher of the law, a teacher of Scripture. But rather than Scripture being a foundation for their teaching, it was merely a launching point into myths and endless genealogies. Most likely they were looking to prove their right standing before God through some Jewish heritage rather than by Christ's work. They were starting with genealogies that were in Scripture, and then they were running off into things that they could actually prove to be true. And they were putting the weight of their their Christian faith on something that was actually outside of the text, ultimately, though they started in the text. Not only that, rather than pointing people to the gospel, it was the kind of thing that only perpetuated speculations, perpetuated controversies, and perpetuated questions. It never arrived at the good news of the kingdom as the answer to the question. It just continued question after question after question. Look, there's times when, when we're trying to understand God's word and we have questions, and that's okay, and we've got to wrestle through those things. But if we don't ever, if we're not going back to the, the answer to find the answer then we've got a problem. And so this this is placed against what he calls the stewardship from God that is by faith. The word stewardship is oikonomos, okay? So it's it's the, the from this Greek word is the word we get economics. It's like the idea uh, it's two words in the Greek put together, household and and law. And this, these these two things are smashed together. It's that idea of economics is the administration of God's household through faith. Not just initial saving faith, but I mean faith in a more general sense. We operate, each of us, those who have been saved, we operate by faith every single day. Faith is not something that you just gets you into uh, the church, gets you, gets you saved. It's, it's the way in which we live our lives. So, to say it another way, 
these different doctrines, they were not stimulating the faith economy of the church. They were causing people to look to something else other than Christ, to depend on something else other than trusting in Him, trusting in His Word. They are like the teachers today who call themselves Christians and cite some Bible passages, but never actually point people to Christ. Good work. Wow. So, it's a barber, I know that. Anyway, I won't throw anyone else under the bus. Uh, too many, too many pastors. I'll get back on track here. Too many pastors in too many churches cite a verse, cite a verse, and then give to their congregation what amounts to three points on the most recent fad or psychological trend or thing in culture that, that people are saying works, rather than giving God's Word and, and Jesus as the answer to the problem. For instance, Jesus says, don't be anxious. Uh, uh, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, right? And they read that and then they give tips they've learned from someone else, some recent doctor, some recent psychologist, some recent whatever, for how you cannot be anxious rather than going to what God's Word actually says we ought to do with our anxiety. total disregard that the word of life actually has something to say about that. And the, and the tricky thing, and, and where I think that Paul, why, why I think Paul's so adamant that Timothy takes up this task is, the tricky thing is on the surface it can sound really good. All the right words can be used. They talk about Jesus, they talk about love, they talk about um, justice, they talk about this, they talk about that. These are, these are words that I've heard in the Bible. I've heard them in Scripture, and it sounds good on the surface, and yet, and yet underneath, it's not God's Word that it's founded on. God's Word is merely a diving board to get you into something else, to point you to something else is the answer. And what that does is, it, it, rather than ever having any... Rather than ever gaining any resolution to the problem, you just continue to be strung along, and you've got to continue to listen to that teacher. He's got, always got a new answer. There's always a new fad. There's always a new trend that comes out that I've got to, that I've got to figure out. I've got to get that knowledge that, that they have, right? Rather than just going, look, I'm just going to trust in Christ and His Word. He will take care of it. I will wait on the Lord. And it's to our harm. There's constantly a new thing. It's what 2 Timothy 3 describes as, quote, always learning but never able to arrive at knowledge. So these different doctrines are not only ones that directly disagree with the gospel, but they're ones that distract us from true gospel growth. They're like cotton candy. They're like the cotton candy of teaching. You know, I've talked, I've probably talked about this before. I hate cotton candy. I hate it. I hate it. You, you, you think you've got something great, you tear a piece off, you put it in your mouth, and before you can even chew it up, it's just it's gone. Like, where did it go? I thought I was eating something. Like, this is no, this is no benefit to me, you know? I want to chew and swallow it. It's just gone. And that's what these different doctrines are. It's like, oh, here, I've got something. Look, look at it. It looks nice. It's blue and red and it's bright and, it, and it's sugary. And you put it in your mouth and then it just dissolves away and there's no substance for you. Stop chasing things that don't have substance. Man, it, it's harder work to cook meat and potatoes, to cut it up and to chew it. But it has substance. God's Word has substance. So the first identifier is, does it point people to faith in Christ? Does it point people to faith in Christ? Does it focus them on His Word? 
Does it build on trusting what, what God's Word says? But there's another. What is the goal or the aim of this stewardship? So the second question you can ask is this. Does it steward people toward love or swerve them from it? The aim of this charge, he says, to, this charge to oppose unsound teaching, but I think also just the goal of sound teaching in general is love. Thus, love from Timothy to certain persons in confronting their heir, and also love within the church. You understand that it is not loving for Timothy to not take up this charge that Paul has given him. Not only that, but it does not produce love in the church if Timothy doesn't take up this charge. And so love is the point B, but what is the point A? Paul gives us a threefold origin for this. That's a pretty good description of the basis for our life of faith. He says that it's pure, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Those three things. And we know, if we turn to Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 22, we know that none of those are possible if it were not for Jesus Christ's work. It's only by His blood, only by what He's done, that we can have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so, if it's faith in Christ, faith in the gospel is our point A, and love is our point B, then how do we, how do we kind of get there? Well, I want to talk about these three, these three aspects briefly, a pure heart. That's the, that's the, inner, uh, it's a, the inner being which is constantly cleansed by forgiveness that comes from the blood of Christ alone. Though we may continue to sin as believers, we confess those sins in Jesus is faithful to forgive us. And we know that. And so we can continue, we can take, we can continue on in our life in that knowledge, I am forgiven for that. A heart unpurified by the great love of Christ on the cross cannot possibly love God. A heart unpurified by the great love of Christ on the cross cannot possibly ever Love God, period. And that kind of heart is going to have a hard time loving others unless it's agreeable to their own self-love. So pure heart is necessary if our aim is love. Pure heart leads to a good conscience. Our conscience is that gift from God that gives us an, this internal awareness of right and wrong and urges us to do what's right. You know when your conscience is pressing on you, you've got some decision ahead of you, and your something inside of you just says, look, I, like, you can't do that. You have to do this, right? And because we're made in God's image, the law of God, it says, is, uh, Paul says in Romans 2.15, is written on our hearts, Every person made in the image of God. But that doesn't mean that our conscience is always correct. That doesn't mean that it's always working properly. It's a tool that God has given us, but it's a tool that can be broken by sin and not operate properly. The Bible tells us that our conscience can be weak. It can be seared. It can be defiled even. And so we must train and transform our conscience by the Word, but it's still a good tool that God has given us, every person, for self-evaluation. And so there's two elements here as we think about conscience. First, first that we honestly listen to and obey our conscience. When you think, that's wrong, I shouldn't do it, don't ignore your conscience. Ignoring your conscience is like the worst thing we can do. You ignore your conscience in this little thing here, and that builds into a bigger thing next time and a bigger thing next time until all of a sudden your conscience is totally broken. You don't listen to it at all. You haven't taken it up. You've forgotten even how to use it. God says if you keep ignoring your conscience that you can sear it, you can cut it off even. Second, that we have to understand that our conscience needs to be refined and informed correctly. Our conscience is not infallible. God's Word is. And so, when we think that's wrong and I shouldn't do it, is my, obsess is my assessment of right and wrong correct? And if I find 
from God's Word that in, that in good conscience, that thinking I was doing right, I was actually doing wrong, then good conscience tells me to change what I'm doing, right? And that goes back to having a pure heart. Uh, then I, I ask for forgiveness for having had that wrong, and God forgives me, and I just I get to continue on in good conscience. And that was not something that was possible under the law outside of faith in Christ. And so that's the wonder of, of good conscience. Without a good conscience, we can find all sorts of ways to justify what we want to call love, which is actually just loving ourselves rather than loving others and loving God. And so these both depend on, and here is the critical thing, they depend on sincere faith because it's genuine trust in Christ and in the gospel that enables us to do that. Man, it's really hard when you think to yourself, that's wrong, I know I shouldn't do it, but I don't know how it'll work out for me if I don't. There is a place there where you actually have to trust that there is a sovereign God that rewards those who do good even if I don't see it right now. And so a sincere faith is absolutely necessary to a, a, good, a conscience that works and operates appropriately. Because there's totally going to be times when you go, I know I shouldn't do that, but practically, I bet that'll work out better. It seems like that'll work out better. And to, trust, and to listen to your conscience, to obey it, you have to trust in Christ. You have to trust that He's in control. You have to trust in the one who goes to the cross in good conscience, who dies in good conscience, and God works it out. So others have swerved from these. They are to some degree off on their correct trajectory, and you know that if, you, you know, if you're a golfer, I haven't golfed in a long time, you know, but you know, like if you, if you're just a little bit off there at the tee, boy, boy, howdy, when you get out there about 200 yards, you know, you're in, you're in the rough. <laughs> you're not in the fairway, which is usually where I was when I played golf. Uh, so, so these people, they, they have swerved. Their, their trajectory is off. And if they continue on that trajectory, they are, they're going to be, in, they're going to be really lost in the woods somewhere. How do, we, how do we stay on that right track towards love? You know, we point people to faith in Christ. Faith in Christ it produces that second thing, love. Love of God, love of others. But, but, but it can't be love defined however I want. It can't be love defined however you want. It's love defined how God defines love, right? And so how is that? Because if it's not love defined by a pure and good and sincere God who is always who He says He is, who is always good, who is always pure and holy, then it is in some sense not true love. And so how does He define it? And this is the last question we have to ask ourselves. Does it, does it define love according to godliness or does it define it according to lawlessness? How should we define love? This is where the rubber meets the road. Like I said, people will love to use Bible words like love, justice, kindness, grace, all those kinds of things, and it sounds really good, but then somehow we end up somewhere else. Like these certain persons, those words become just a diving board that, are, that, that then, then those words are defined by things outside of the Bible rather than inside of the Bible, and it hooks Christians because they want to be loving, they want to be just, they want to be kind, they want to be gracious, and that's a good thing, but it hooks them and it leads them astray. So what does, what does define love? Is it the gospel? Not exactly. And the gospel is a great display of God's love for us. But love's not defined by the gospel. According to Jesus, to love God and to love others is defined by the law. That's where that comes from. The law is summed up in this. Love God and love other people. Paul's letter directly to the Ephesian church, he makes it really clear 
after spending the first three chapters of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, telling us about the great wisdom of God and the mystery of the gospel, the riches of God's grace and mercy to us in Christ, he says there in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Did you catch that? You don't walk in a manner worthy enough to get called. You've already been called. Now walk that way, he says. That is the gospel, that God would do that. But the way in which we are to walk, that is the love we are to do, and that is defined by the law. Now we are beckoned to live according to our new place, our new position, our new status as child of God, and and the law guides us. You don't earn the family name. It's given to you. Now that you have it, act like the name you carry. Act like Christ. That is what the gospel produces. That's the aim. The gospel produces love. The gospel produces a right living out of the law the way God intended it to be lived out. In accordance to the gospel, our passage says. And so the law must be used lawfully in accordance with the gospel. Certainly the law restricts evil in the world, and it has for generations opened up the eyes of those with faith to their need for Christ. You know, you read the law and you go, I don't do that. I need something else. And Jesus does it for us. How much more should it open up our eyes now that the mystery of Christ is revealed? How much more for us who can look back at Christ on the cross ought it open up our eyes to how we ought to live now? It reflects the character of God, and the character of God is love. So Paul gives both some general and specific categories here. I'm not going to go into super depth on these, but but first he gives three pairs of general terms, lawlessness and disobedience, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. Now, some tie these these, um, words to the first four of the Ten Commandments, I'm not entirely entirely sold on that. It may be a little bit of a stretch. Nevertheless, I think it does describe a a general disregard for God as the authority over their lives. Unfortunately, today, is not only that there are people who fall into this category. There's always been people who have been ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, not lawless and disobedient, right? There's always been that in the history of the world. Unfortunately, today, there's an increasing number of people who want to say that these rules are inherently in themselves evil and that we got to be liberated from them. That what's good is a certain necessary self-expression, whatever we want to do, when in reality, all that is, is another way of saying lawlessness. I heard a quote, I can't, and I can't remember who it's from, it's not from me. I heard a quote recently, and it said, um, true freedom is found in submission to lawful authorities. True freedom is found in submission to lawful authorities. You want real freedom in your life? That can only be gained by submitting yourself to those in which you ought to be submitting yourself. To that in which you ought to be submitting yourself. Ultimately, to God and to his word. There can be no freedom outside of that. There is no freedom outside of that. What you think is freedom will ultimately bind you. It will ultimately hurt you and destroy you and imprison you. So this, this, these people in the Ephesian church, they tried to dodge, they're trying to dodge these general categories, I think, with their different doctrines. And so, so Paul continues on, he goes, hey, unless you're not getting those general categories, let me give you some specific things, some, a little bit tighter ties. And I, and I think there's a tie here to per, probably the fifth through the ninth commandments in these things. So first, the fifth commandment, those who strike their fathers and mothers. 
Certainly that includes physical striking, but it would also include any kind of striking out against your father's mother. Listen, kids, I want you to listen to this real quick. God's word says that honoring your father and your mother is the first commandment with a promise that you would live long in the world. God's word says that's a promise. Like not honoring your parents in God's eyes is no small thing. It's a really big thing. When you don't honor your parents, you don't honor God. Look, I know I'm a parent and I had parents and I know I mess stuff up all the time. And sometimes I got to go back and I got to apologize to my kids because I've just, I told them to do something and I was wrong. But listen, that's on them. They have to answer to that, not you. But if you dishonor your parents, if you refuse to obey them, that's on you now. And I don't care if you're 15 or you're five, God will hold you accountable to that. He will. Murderers, that's pretty self-explanatory. Of course, Jesus says, look, like if you, if you are angry, if you lash out at your, if you hate your brother, you've destroyed the heart of what that command is about. He goes on to say the sexual immoral and men who practice homosexuality. This, look, that's as much as in our culture we want to try to twist things around and make things that are, that are you know, somehow make th- something that's sexually immoral or wrong sexually into something that's somehow turned right, it's really actually pretty clear. It, it, it's really obvious. We just want to justify our actions. Enslavers, literally translated those who kidnap people stealers. People stealers, and certainly that goes on today, but of course we can tie that to the commandment to not steal. Liars and perjurers, listen, there's no, there's no small lies, there's no white lies, there's no, well, I guess that wasn't technically true, but it's not that big of a deal. No, it is a big deal. It is a big deal whether it be in your family, in your personal life, in your business, tell the truth. Be honest, even if it's, even if you think, oh, this is going to be, this is not going to, this is not going to be good for me financially or business-wise. Be people of integrity. How can we, how can we, how can we deal in our businesses in an untruthful way and then try to present the truth of the gospel to people? That makes no sense. Listen, if you've been dishonest in some way in your business practices, I pray that it would eat you up all day today and that the first thing Monday, you can't do a single thing until you set that straight. It matters that much. I heard a story this week of of a... now, this is, this is going way back, Christian g- general, um, and um, he, he post, post the war, and he's teaching at um, uh, VMI is where he taught, and, and he has a student that comes up to him and says, hey, hey sir, I, I think, professor, I think you got, uh, got my grade wrong on this quiz, and he says, no, the grade's right, and he says, no, I really, I think you got this grade wrong, and he says, no, the grade's right, and, and, and the, the conversation ends there, he says, that's enough, like, I got it right, go on. And, and they go their separate ways. Well, later that night, he's sleeping in his bed. Of course, this is, you know, like, eight, I can't remember what year, 18, whatever. It's after the Civil War. And, and uh, this, this, this guy, he's a Christian, and he is sleeping, and he wakes up at one in the morning, and he realizes, oh, my goodness, that student was right. I was wrong. And he wakes up, and he gets himself in full formal uniform dress, military dress, and he walks all the way to the campus, to the dormitory. And 1 a.m. knocks on the door and says, first off, I want you to know, you were right. I will change it first thing in the morning. And second, I wanted to apologize for lying to you. 
And the student goes, <laughs> scratching, sleep out of his eyes, I'm sure. is like, look, you could have told me tomorrow morning. It's not that big of a deal. And he goes, no, it is that big of a deal. I could not have slept knowing that I have lied to you until I set that straight. Oh, that we would have that kind of integrity even in the church. All right, so none of these behaviors, none of these lawless behaviors can possibly be loving because they are inherently harmful to people, to communities, and to civilizations. If you disregard God's design for humanity, you will tear down humanity just as if you disregard God's design for the church, it will harm the church. So our identifiers point people to the faith in Christ. Does this teaching point people to faith in Christ? Does it produce love for God and others? Does it promote godliness? And I've been a little bit long-winded this morning. I apologize, but let me comp- conclude with Paul's final words to those elders um, the elders at Ephesus, as he's traveling in Acts 20, he, he decides, I can't, I don't have time to make a detour through Ephesus, but he sends someone, he says, hey, get the elders, have them kind of triangulate, meet me here, because I got something I want to say to them, because I have a feeling I'm never going to see them again. And so in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 26, he says this, therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul taught all the positive commands of Scripture according to the gospel. Then he says, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, right? Pay careful attention. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Just think about that. Paul is saying to them, from among you, elders, people will twist the gospel. I know it's going to happen. It's not if, it's when and what. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. There will come a day when we will stand before the Lord and there will be no more need to confront certain persons because the Lord himself will be the final confronter. And he will be right there and we will know. And for what we in faith and good conscience misunderstood about him and his word, he will shower grace and mercy upon us. But until that day, let us understand that while we have a task, ultimately it depends on God, on his word of grace, on his ability to build us up, on his inheritance his ability to sanctify us. So let us trust in him as we pursue this task of confronting unsound teaching. Let me pray.